All right, so we're going to be going over Romans, um, and what we're going to do is just kind of go old school. No handouts or anything, just go through this text and study um, specifically through the text. So there'll be a lot of applications, but the primary focus, at least my primary focus, is not to apply it. It's just to, to learn the text, because this book is... Um, extremely dense. So, for instance, you know, when you go through Romans in a, in a class setting, like at a preaching school or at a university or something like that, it takes, you know, a year. It takes six months to go through the book. We're going to go through it in four weeks. So we're not going to be able to hit everything. But um, I think we'll, we'll get a general idea of what the book is about and some applications along the way. Not too many, though. And um, and go through it. The point of Romans is not like the rest of his books, right? So, um, for instance, what's the point of... I always use 1 Corinthians as an example. But what's the point of the book of 1 Corinthians? Correction. Yeah, correction of problems. First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus are written to younger preachers. Um, his books usually deal with specific issues or specific problems. The book of Romans, on the other hand, is not dealing with a specific issue or problem. It's just kind of a treatise on gospel, on justification, on faith. Mainly because if you study the historical reasons why Romans needed to be written, um, like we're going to see in chapter 1, at the point of writing, there hasn't been any apostles that have made it to Rome for one reason or another. So how do you think the church at Rome began if there's not been one of the twelve, one of the apostles go to Rome? How did it, how did it even come to be in the first place? Yeah, how? How would a church in the first century, how would a church have started if there wasn't an apostle that had gone there to start the church in some evangelistic mission or something. Perhaps um, some that had been at, um, at the beginning. Yeah, at Pentecost, right. Pentecost. Chances are that's probably where it started. Um, we don't we don't really have any of the backstory of this of this book. Or sorry, of this of this church. We know at eventually the this church the church at Rome, or the churches at Rome, depending on how many congregations there were in the city. Um, the false teachings and, and the, the false bishops and elderships that were overseeing entire cities, entire areas, began here, which is why we have the Roman Catholic Church, right? It started in Rome. I can imagine that. Yeah, so you can almost see, now this, this may be reading into the text some, but you can almost see why that is the case. I mean, when this book is written, they needed a book that was just on justification and on faith and salvation because they were base level. They never really had a lot of of leadership training, a lot of, of building up from apostles. Paul would get there eventually at the end of uh, the book of Acts, but I mean, he only spent a couple years there. Uh, Peter is said to have gone at some point, uh, traditionally speaking. So you have some apostles coming in here and there, but it's not like 
say, Antioch or Jerusalem, where the apostles just lived there. It's not like, um, it's not like Ephesus or Galatia, where Paul left ministers there. It seems like, at least when we start reading the book, that this church has kind of sprung up by itself, is all alone. They don't really understand anything, really, right? Um, they, I mean, think about it. If, if they are converted at Pentecost, you have just a few years before they're dispersed because of Acts 8 and the, the persecution. And so just a couple of years around other Christians and then they're back home in Rome all by themselves. So this book, what we're going to do over the four weeks is break it up into four chapters each week. So this, this study will go through chapters 1 through 4, 5 through 8. Um, and then um, 9 through 11 and 12 through 16. So we're not going to hit four exactly, but those are kind of the general breakups of the, of the book. Uh, chapters 1 through 8 is all about doctrine. Uh, 9 through 11 is kind of national, how do, we, how do we view the nation of Israel? How do we view the nation of Rome or the empire of Rome? And then chapters 12 through 16 is all practical stuff. That's the normal setting of books that are written at this time. Um, if you had something deep like that, you would go through, if, if it's a philosophical writing or something like that, you'd go through it and then at the end you would apply it. So that's what he did. Um, so let's just dive into the text, all right? Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just to give an insight into the, the depth of this book, everything we just read is one sentence. There's so much packed into this book that it, it, gets, it gets daunting at times. So let's back up. Chapter 1, verse 1. Somebody read that. Just the first verse. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. All right, so set apart for the gospel of God or unto the gospel of God. Paul um, starts talking about the gospel in the very first verse. Now, what is the gospel? The good news, right? Good news about what? Because it, that definition, the word gospel would have been used in that time to mean any good news. Okay, so if you have a person that comes back from war, right, and is telling telling about a, a victory, he would be spreading the gospel of the war, right? So good news, it, it's it's just that good news about anything, right? Do what? No, I'm saying you use that word generic. Yeah, it's just generic. It's just generic. So most of the time, when you have it in the scripture, it always talks about the gospel of God. Or later on in the writings, you just have it called the gospel because by that point, 
everybody pretty much knows what gospel we're talking about, right? So what is the good news, though? If you had to define it, what would it be? Death, burial, and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, right? 1 through 5. Um, do what? Salvation. Salvation, right? The idea that we have salvation because of the um, because of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's also um, it's the the life that that salvation that that death, burial, and resurrection brings about, right? So the gospel is um, just as much the Christian life as it is. And the Christian teachings, the Christian principles in the New Testament as it is the actual death, burial, and resurrection. So anytime you read the, go- the word gospel, don't think that it's just death, burial, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Set apart for the death, burial, and resurrection of God. You see, that, that doesn't fit very well unless Paul is somehow going to take part in that death, burial, and resurrection, right? Mm-hmm. Which he is symbolically in baptism, but... Paul isn't going to be crucified the way Christ is. But he's set apart for the purpose of the gospel, or unto the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We talked about this a few weeks ago in in a Bible class or at some point, but maybe it was last week when we were talking about Job. Um, No, it was when we were talking about Revelation. So when you have new Christians... In this time period, you know, like, like we were talking about before, we don't really know the Jewish system, the Jewish way of life, hardly at all, right? I mean, we have been separated from that. Now, most people who are Christians either come out of some sort of atheism or um, the, the vast majority of people in our country claim Christianity or at least know something about God. But no one really knows about Judaism, right? Um, these Christians would have known a good level of Judaism. But not a whole lot. Because remember, Rome is where? In Italy, right? It's, it's, in, it's, the, it's the headquarters of the Roman Empire. There are Jews there. But not that many. Right? Um... So when he's when he's talking about the Holy Scriptures, that would have meant something to them. They wouldn't have understood it completely. But they would have understood the, the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's just interesting to me that on the, the book about salvation, there aren't that many passages that talk about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's linked together more. Like in Galatians, Paul deals with the problem of going back to the Old Testament, right? Because they were they were doing it too much. But I think there's there's a lot that's missed from not understanding the Old Testament. And I don't mean just the stories, but like the culture of Judaism, the the the, the nation, the the people, the the atmosphere, that sort of thing. That we're missing something a lot of times. But in this time period. What's happening is, just a few years before this, uh, and I don't remember the date exactly, but just a few years before this, the Roman emperor banned Judaism altogether. Um, 
And the reason for that is kind of just a, a prejudice against Jews. It wasn't, this is written in 57 AD, so you don't have, you know, you don't have the, the persecution of Nero against the Jews or anything like that. It was just kind of prejudiced against the nationality of Judaism. And so he banned them all. Well then, a few years later, they all come back. And this book is written after they come back. So you have Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Um, and they don't have a lot of a lot of familiarity with one another because it's been a few years since they were together, um, since Jews were allowed into this into the city. And so he does deal with the difference to some degree, but not to the level of, of writing entire I mean he wrote all of Hebrews about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Romans doesn't have that. Because when we're talking about salvation, is salvation only for the New Testament? So how was a how was a Jew saved from his sins? They didn't have Jesus Christ, right? So how would a Jew have been saved from his sins? At the end of the year, they would have the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? But that rolls it forward. Doesn't take it away, does it? When when they're rolling it forward every year, they're rolling it forward until when? Until Jesus comes back, right? So the old the old illustration is that the blood of cross ran forward and backwards. That it ran to, through the New Testament and through the Old Testament. And we'll talk about that later on in this in this chapter. Uh, of how a Jew would have been saved from his sins, or how Jews were saved from their sins. Alright, so back to chapter 1. Um, verse number 4. It was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Somebody get 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. Yep. Yep. Second Corinthians thirteen four. I'm reading King James version here. It says, "For thou, he was crucified for the weakness; yet he lived by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you." All right. So he was crucified in weakness. Right, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? Could have called ten thousand. Ten legions, not ten thousand, but ten ten thousand angels, right? As the song goes, he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So here's a question for you, okay? Did Jesus raise himself from the dead, or did God raise him from the dead? God raised him from the dead. However, Jesus is God, right? So when the Father does something. The Son does it as well. They're one in unity. They're one in purpose. They're one in action. Um, back probably five, six years ago, there was a big thing in the church. I don't think it got down here, which is good, uh, because I think we'd still be dealing with it. <laughs> um, I know they are in Tennessee, but um, there was a, a big stink about do we pray to the Father or do we pray to the Son? Right? Which one? Which one do we pray for? Did y'all hear about that down here? 
Okay, I'm sorry. Um, which one do we pray for? To the Father or to the Son? Do we, do we address our prayers to Jesus Christ or to the Father? Or do we address ourselves to the, to the, to the Holy Spirit? And I remember there were books written about it, tracts written about it. There were, I mean, it was just, it, North Alabama and Tennessee just lit on fire with talking about, do we pray to Jesus or pray to the, to the Father? There's a very real sense in which every single thing that we offer to the Son, we are offering to the Father and vice versa, doesn't really matter, right? Romans chapter 1 verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. Wait, did God the Father raise Him from the dead? Or was He declared in power by the resurrection by the Spirit? You see there? The 2 Corinthians 13.4 says that God the Father did it. Romans 1.4 says the Spirit did it. Which one is it? It's both. That's not a contradiction because of the fact that when one does it, they all do it. Right? There's no difference in them. There are differences in actions. There are differences in the way that they work and the way that they interact with mankind. But when one does it, all three of them do it. There's no difference there. And that's one of the, that's a contradiction that, that comes up, not too regularly, but, you know, that, that's, that's an alleged contradiction that, well, who raised him from the dead? Did Jesus Christ raise himself from the dead? Yes. Did the Father raise himself from the dead? Yes. Did the Spirit raise him from the dead? Yes. Right? What about the uh, point that um, we pray, we pray through Jesus to, to reach the Father? Right, right. Well, he's our mediator, right? He's our mediator. He understands what it's like to be man, which is why he is our mediator, the book of Hebrews says. Um, but the question is, if we pray to the Father, does the Holy Spirit hear that prayer? And obviously, yes, because he is our intercessor, Right? Jesus is our mediator. What's the difference between an intercessor and a mediator? There is no difference. They're the same thing. And, and so that, that contradiction, that alleged contradiction, is gonna, it, it comes up, like I said, not too regularly, but it will come up at times. Which one did this? Which one did that? Well, they, they're all doing it together. It doesn't, you know, in passages in Scripture, it says that the Father created the world. But then Hebrews 2 says that Jesus Christ created the world, right? And Genesis 1 says that the Holy Spirit was there creating the world. See, there's no difference there, right? So, do what? Yeah, they're all one. They've got one purpose, one mind. They are one God. Um, they, it just seems to be that there are three parts of that God, right? And don't try to wrap your head around that because it'll give you a headache quickly about... The three parts of a one God. It, it, that's really something that people get too focused on. And they lose sight of, of, of everything about God to begin with. So, Alright, so verse number 5. Through whom uh, we have received grace, apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his, ne his name among all the nations. According to you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Flip over to Romans 8. Uh, in verse 28. And somebody grabbed that one for me. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to 
good to them that love God, to whom, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose, right. So the reason I wanted to go over there is to talk about this verse 6. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're called to belong to Jesus Christ by his purpose. Romans 8, 28. What is the purpose of God? What what is he purposed? When it comes to man, what is he purposed for us to be? Right, just to be saved, right, to be saved. He intended for us never to be lost in the first place, right? So we've been called not by name, not by individual, but by purpose. God has called us in his purpose so that every person should be saved. Um. And, and, you know, the, the idea of election and that God, choose, what we talked about this morning, this, this idea of Calvinism, um, it, makes the, it makes the Bible question its own self. We're called to belong to Jesus Christ by the purpose. And then he says, verse 7, that he's doing this. He's writing to those who are in Rome. And he, he uses his usual thing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Alright, so Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Is there any questions about verses 1 through 7? He's just opening the book. He says, I'm, I'm writing about the gospel. You are Christians. You're called according to his purpose. You, um, I'm calling, I'm writing about this gospel that is about Jesus Christ, about salvation. He kind of introduces all of those topics here in, in the first seven verses. So verse number 8. Um, yeah, go ahead. So he, essentially, He's acknowledging they are saints, and that no matter how it looks, as though you know they are doing some things wrong, they they got that one thing right. They, yeah, and and we really don't have we really don't have any inclination in the book that they are doing anything wrong in action. Right now, chapters uh, chapters two and three. We're going to see that the Jews have a wrong mentality. Uh, chapter 14, we're going to see that they have a problem with uh, brothers dealing with, you know, it's been a long time since Jews and Gentiles were together in Rome. And Gentiles have much a much different culture than the Jews do in that clash of cultures. Um, but they weren't, it, it wasn't like 1 Corinthians 5 when they're, they have a problem with accepting sin into their camp or... Um, they seem like, for the most part, they're pretty caring toward one another. That they're that they're involving one another, not like at Corinth and so forth. Um, but yeah, he's he's writing this book because which is more important? Um, if you have a problem in a church, granted, there were most likely problems at Rome. We just don't know about them. Which is more important? To deal with the problem, some some action problem, or do you need to know what salvation is before you deal with that problem? Yeah, you you have to know the basics, right? And this church is, from from everything we can tell, they're very immature in their faith. They probably have problems, but those problems can wait till later. Wait till Paul gets there, most likely, right? So chapter 1 verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because of your faith, or sorry, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So everybody always says that Romans 1, 16 and 17 are the crux of the, ver- of the book, that they're the main passage of the book. I kind of disagree on that. Verse 9 to me seems like it is the basis for, and he's talking about himself, but he's using himself as an illustration. It seems to me like it's the basis for chapters 1 through 4. And that is this idea of whom I serve with my spirit. Um, Acts 24, I'll just flip over there real quick and read this. Um, Acts 24, 14, but I confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's Paul kind of talking to Felix and giving his um, his um, defense, if you will. So, Paul says that he serves God with his spirit. How do you do that? How do you serve with your spirit? Doing the things that are pleasing to God. Right, right, right. Um, Doing them not just out of obligation, though, right? I'm serving with my spirit. Paul, well, he's, Paul is more worried about the mindset behind the actions than he is the actual actions, right? If they're sinful, they're sinful actions. Don't deal with the actions, deal with the mentality, right? Don't fix the symptoms, fix the sickness. I'm serving with my spirit. Out of that spirit, first off, who built the spirit into God? Or into Paul. God did, right? Through his teachings. He had the spirit of God. And so, Paul is more worried about the mentality surrounding the actions than the actual actions. Does that mean that actions are not important? Absolutely not. Um, But he, he realizes that if you have the mentality correct, all of the actions fix themselves. Right. Um, I don't. I don't know about y'all, but have y'all ever talked to a person who say worships with instruments? Right. I understand instruments are are sinful. Right. Um. If you just go up and tell them, hey, you know that guitar, that piano, that drum set, whatever it is, is sinful, they're gonna listen to you. No, right? You have to deal with this, with the mentality of it. Show them that the, the mentality is the problem. It's not a... The, the, the trumpet, the guitar, whatever, is not sinful, right? It's not... The, the instrument's not the problem. It's the mentality behind it. If you're serving with your spirit, then you have that spirit of, of willingness to do whatever is said. Which sets the the tone for the rest of this chapter and all through chapter four. 
He's dealing with a mentality in chapters 1 through 4, not the actual actions. Actions are mentioned a lot in these next few chapters, but it's the mentality of those actions that, that Paul is condemning. All right? So, for instance, look at verse 11. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So I'm eager to preach to the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why did Paul want to get to Rome? He says to preach to them the gospel, but to impart to them gifts. Shows that, one, they didn't have apostles yet. Two, they're very immature in their faith, right? What were some of the gifts? What were some of these miraculous gifts that Christians were doing in the first century? Speaking in tongues, right? Healing is sick. Raising the dead. Discernment, right? They could just look at someone and see what, you know, know what kind of person they were. Revelation is also one, right? So you have a church who has no Bible, right? I mean, think about it. They have no... How mature can they be in their faith if they have no access to Revelation at this point? Which is why he needs to write a book on justification and salvation. They're, they're so immature, they're just doing what they did in Jerusalem. And that's assuming that these Christians were at Jerusalem. They may have had one guy that was at Jerusalem and went back to Rome and said, okay, yeah, so back in Jerusalem, we would sing and we would pray and we would study the script. Well, we don't have any scriptures. Um, and what else did we do? Uh, see, see the problem with that? He wants to get there because this is, and it's just interesting to me. Um, Y'all have heard that Revelation is the toughest book in the New Testament. Uh, just wait till we get to chapter 7 and 8 of Romans. <laughs> Revelation is not a hard book once you put your mind in the place that they would have been. They, they would have read Revelation with no problem and understood it with no problem. Romans, on the other hand, the deepest theological doctrinal book in the New Testament is written to people who, it's pretty safe to say, had probably never studied anything about the New Testament. They didn't have revelation. They needed him to get there so that he could give them that. And yet, does that, maybe it's just me, but that kind of tells me that this idea of milk and meat in the New Testament, we kind of step around that a lot. Well, you know, they're new Christians. They just need milk. Well, Paul wrote the book of Romans to some new Christians, relatively speaking, um, which is super deep, right? Um, I think we, we, we think people are too immature at times. And that's, maybe that's just me, but. 
Um, I think we, we withhold the hard, quote unquote, hard stuff for too long. And then we wonder why Christians fall away, right? Well, because they've, they've been in the church for 15 years and they don't know anything. Because we're still trying to feed them milk, not realizing realizing they were probably ready for turfer stuff the moment they got out of the out of the water, and we've just kind of built up just fake Christians who just do nothing, right? Um, zeal. Sometimes they don't, you know, zeal is gone. They don't start out. Yeah, yeah, time. and I think I think a lot of times that zeal is left. It, it leaves. Because they have no backbone. Right? They're all about it. And then... Yeah, they get comfortable. And they're all about the faith. And they're all about Christianity. And they come in. And they're so excited. And then they realize it's the same as when I was out there. Only now I don't get to have fun. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, that, that's just something that every time I read Romans, it, it, it sticks out to me. So... So back to this idea of, of the mentality that, that Paul is dealing with. Um, somebody read Romans 1, 16 through, well, just Romans 1, 16 and 17. Alright, so that's a verse 17, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2 4 is a quotation of that. So verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The word ashamed means confused by. Okay. It it also I mean if you're confused by something, you're going to be ashamed of it. You're not going to want to talk about it, right? Um I remember for the longest time. I didn't understand some concepts in the New Testament because um, that that whole milk thing, y'all know, uh, at least some of y'all know, that I didn't have that period of milk time. I was baptized and a week later was leading singing at a devotional and then two months later preached my first sermon after having led four Bible studies in that time period. So I, they didn't give me the milk time. It was like, here you go, here's a Bible, you're leading Bible study next week. Um, but yeah, exactly. Trial by fire. Um, but there were a lot of concepts that I wouldn't talk about. I wouldn't preach about them. I wouldn't study them because I was, I didn't know it. I was confused by it. Right. If I don't understand the nature of the Godhead, I'm not going to talk about the nature of the Godhead. Understand it as much as we, (laughs) as much as we can at least. But there were there were passages and, and ideas that I just stayed away from because I was scared to talk about them. Because um, I, I was scared I'd stumble over myself, say something that's wrong, so forth. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm not confused by the gospel. I understand the gospel. Because in it, the power of God, uh, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're going to have salvation, you have to understand the gospel. If someone is wanting to be baptized, what do they need to know in order to become a Christian? What what ideas do, do they need to know? 
Do they need to do they need to have a complete understanding of why instrumental music is wrong before they can be baptized? No. Do they need to know not that, but why? Not that it's wrong, but why denominationalism is wrong. Do they need to understand why denominationalism is wrong? Yes, why? Why? Because it contradicts what... Because the gospel is about this oneness that is brought in Jesus Christ, right? That's why they need to understand that. There are things that they don't need to understand. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. If you're going to be saved, you've got to understand the gospel. That Jesus Christ came, that he died, that he was resurrected. And because of that, we have oneness with God. Which means we have now given our lives completely over to him. What he's going to talk about in the rest of the book. The, the idea of, of baptism, washing our sins. We're no longer slaves to sin. This is, this is just kind of my opinion. Some people would disagree with this. But everything in the book of Romans. At least the general concepts in the book of Romans. Those are what I believe. Those are what I des- desire to teach someone before they become a Christian. That chapters 1 through 3, everyone is lost. Chapter 4, it's only faith that will save you. Chapter 5, it's only faith in Jesus Christ that's going to save you. Chapter 6, that faith leads you to be freed from your sins through baptism. 7 and 8, because of that baptism, you are completely forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed. 9, 10, and 11. That means your life is going to change. And here's how it's going to change. See, the, the, the book of Romans is what people need to learn in order to become a Christian. They don't need to know about, you know, the gifts, uh, the, the miraculous gifts. And, and whether or not they've ceased. Who, who cares if they've ceased? If, if, if I don't understand salvation... Yes, they have ceased. They need to learn that eventually. But if I don't understand salvation, I can't do what God wants me to do. And chapter 1 verse 17 says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Righteousness means rightness or his... his, I don't know, how would, you, how would you define righteousness or rightness? It's actions, right? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added unto you. It, it's in the gospel, God's love, his, his, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness. The fact that he's right. God has placed within us the, the ability to know right from wrong, Right? And the gospel shows that God is the ultimate right. That he's the ultimate good. It's revealed from faith to for faith, or faith to faith. As it is written, the righteousness, or the righteous shall live by faith. So that verse, that, that phrase revealed from faith to faith has confused a lot of people. And unless you get into, you know, 
conversations with about it. It, it, it may not be beneficial, but, but here's how I read it. And this is a translation. It's the easy-to-read version, which sounds scary, right? Anything called the easy-to-read version sounds scary. But, it's, but there were members of the church that were involved in translating it. So it is fairly good. It's paraphrasing, though, okay? So here's it paraphrased. God's way of making people right begins and ends with faith. That's what from faith to faith means. It means wherever you look on the timeline of humanity, people have always been saved, always been made right by faith. So how was a Jew saved? Faith. How was a person under the patriarchal system saved? Faith. How was a Christian saved? Faith. If a Jew, and, and we'll talk about this when we get to circumcision, if a Jew goes on Yom Kippur, buys his turtle dove or his goat or whatever he's supposed to buy that day or any other day of salvation, any other day where he's he's offering a, a, an atonement for his sins or a, a sacrifice for one sin or another, and he goes and he pays his money, and he only does it out of cultural rightness. Because it's just a cultural thing to do. Has that sacrifice worked? No. He didn't have faith, right? That's what led me... A few weeks ago we talked about the book of Acts. And when Paul... And and how biblical narrative records what happened. Not necessarily what should have happened. In the book of Acts when Paul goes and offers that sacrifice. He was doing it culturally. Culturally. He was not doing it thinking that it was saving him or anything else. He understood that Jesus Christ saved him. That's why I'm not going to say that Paul sinned when he offered that sacrifice at the temple. I think it was it was very, I think it was a bad idea. I think that it was unwise. And I know I'm calling Paul the apostle unwise in that. But I think what it ended up doing is shooting himself in the foot. And shooting us in the foot a lot because people will use that as a, as a, as a justification for other things, right? I can go worship at the blank church, or I can go, you know, worship at the the, the blank temple because Paul did it. See what I'm saying? I don't think he sinned, but it was unwise because he didn't have the he he didn't believe that was saving him or that he was rolling his sin back or anything like that. He did it out of cultural reasons. Wherever you look in the Old Testament. They're always saved by faith. And he's going to go into that more in just a minute when we talk about uh, circumcision. So I'll leave that for that. But remember Romans 1, 16 and 17. No matter where people are on the timeline of humanity, it's always been faith. Now that faith leads to action. We're, we're not going to go into the faith only because I think all of us understand that, that true faith does not sit on its thumbs and do nothing. Right? True faith is active. So, alright. Uh, chapter 1, verse number 18. So this is, this whole section is about when faith is, is defiled. Every person on the timeline of humanity has been saved by faith. But what happens when they have faith in something that isn't true? What happens when they have true zeal, true faith in idolatry? Or in false teachings and so forth. 
Chapters, chapter 118 all the way through chapter 3 is about that. What happens when they have faith, but they don't? their faith isn't in the right place? So, chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Now, while we read this, I want you to I want you to see if it sounds like the people he's talking about. Which who's he talking about? Gentiles, right? I want you to I want you to see just at the end of this. If it sounds like these Gentiles are responsible to the law of God or amenable to the law of God, okay? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, or His Godhead, divine nature is the the creative power of God, okay? So His eternal power and creative power have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to be done, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does that sound like the Gentiles are in sin because they didn't follow God's law? Verse verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree. What's God's righteous decree? Right. Where does He tell them not to do them? In the law of Moses. Was a Gentile... How in the world were Gentiles amenable to the law of Moses when they didn't even have the law of Moses. Who had the law of Moses? The Jews, right? So why is God holding them accountable to the law of Moses when they didn't even have the law of Moses? He he knew that they knew these things without being being given the law. Right. So there's this idea... There's this idea that um, that 
in the Old Testament times, the Jews were under the law of Moses and the Gentiles were under the patriarchal law. And that God had two laws running simultaneous alongside each other. The problem with that is, Hebrews says there can't be two laws running simultaneously alongside each other. Romans 1, 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and creative power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. It wasn't that, we'll talk about this in chapter 3, it wasn't that the Gentiles were somehow, as the text says, as, as the text seems to be saying, let me rephrase that, a law to themselves, that they just made it up, or that their consciences were their guides. They were supposed to be following the law of Moses. They didn't. And given enough time, they forgot about the law of Moses. But, Romans 1.20, they should have known to look for it. Because they should have known that God is here. The, the world gives us the inclination that God is here. Then it is our responsibility to look for him, not to make him up. The Gentiles didn't look for him. They just made him up. They, they weren't looking for truth. They made their own truth. And so because of that, they do all of these things. They, they, they go to their lusts for their hearts to impurity, verse 24. They dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchange truth about God for a lie because they didn't look for the truth. They just made it up. The Gentiles were not under their own law. At least not in God's eyes. They saw themselves under their own law. And they came up with all these kinds of laws, all these religions, all these, all these idol worships and so forth. But they weren't supposed to be doing that. They were supposed to be looking for the law of Moses. Now, are there parts in the law of Moses that would allow them to be in, in Judaism had they found it? If you look for it, you're going to find it. And if you're a Gentile in that time and you're looking for God and you find the Old Testament law of Moses, yeah, there are parts. Anytime you read the Old Testament and it says, and the stranger in your gate, that's a Gentile who's now a Jew, right? That's one of the things that I never, I would not talk about it because I didn't understand. How in the world was, does that mean that every Gentile was lost from the time Moses wrote, Moses received the Ten Commandments and wrote the law to the time Jesus came back. All Gentiles are lost. No. The vast majority of them were. Because they didn't look for the truth. They sat on their own laurels. And made their own laws. Instead of looking for a religion. That, that was the law of God. Those Gentiles that found it. Became part of the law of Moses. They weren't Jews. So they didn't have all of the benefits of being a Jew. Right? They kind of had more benefits than anything, right? Because how were strangers in the gates supposed to provide for themselves under the Jewish system, under the law of Moses? The Jews were supposed to take care of them. They were supposed to just be benevolent, acceptors of benevolence, right? So they, if they would have found it, if they would have looked, they would have found 
a, a religion that was one from God, two, that was so much easier for them. They didn't have to make up all these gods. They could, they could have found it themselves. So then chapter 1, if you're in a, in a church where there's Jews and Gentiles, and you read chapter 1, and you're just, you read, Paul is just hammering the Gentiles, verses 18 through the, the rest of the chapter. Look at how horrible the Gentiles were. They should have been looking for the truth, but they weren't. They just did whatever they wanted to, and God had to give them up to their debased minds. He just let them do whatever they want because they, they were so far gone. Yeah, Paul, get them. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Anytime a Jew said, O man, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't like a, I just stubbed my toe type thing, O man. It was, he's talking to Gentiles, or to Jews, sorry. So when he says, O man, he means, O Jewish man. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You think they're so bad, you're doing the same thing, and you didn't have to look for the law. The law was sitting in front of you the whole time. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness? Are you, are you hoping that God's so kind that because you're a Jew, He's just going to look over what you've been doing? Yeah, exactly. We can do whatever we want. We're Jews. Well, not so much. <laughs> right? Um, look down at verse number 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, pra- who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Those who look for it, those who by practice and well-doing seek for glory. See there again. The Gentiles were supposed to be seeking. Many of them did not. In the New Testament, it's the same thing. We're supposed to be seeking for it. We're supposed to be looking for it. Now, um, we don't have it just sat down in front of us. I mean, our kids... Ow! Our kids do. I just slammed my finger on that. That hurt really bad. Our kids do, right? Our kids grow up around the church, and as long as we're being faithful parents, they have it sitting in front of them. Um, does that mean they're going to follow it every time? No. Right? That does not mean that they're just... In fact, perfect example of this idea of... I had, I had a guy just a little while ago... Um, say something to the effect of if we were good parents when our kids were younger they wouldn't have left the church because they had it sitting right in front of them and all I could think was well so did the Jews and look what they did right just because it's sitting in front of them doesn't mean they're going to follow it the Jews had it sitting in front of them and they didn't follow it chapter 2 verse 12 Uh, I know we're skipping a little bit but um just for time's sake. So, chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, without means outside of. Okay, it doesn't mean lack of, lack of holding. It means outside of. I don't know why translations today, and, and all the way back to King James, put it without the law. I mean, it means without, right? Without means outside. 
but that that sounds a little strange to us in our in our vernacular. For all have sinned, all who have sinned outside of the law will perish outside of the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Yeah. Right. Take it to the Christian. The person who has no clue, and today they, you know, they went downtown, they went whitewater rafting, and they had a blast today. They've never been contacted with the gospel. Are they lost? Are they lost? Yeah. What happens if they die right now? They go to torment, right? I mean, that's 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 just how it works. They're outside of the law. They're lost because they've never had the chance to be saved. What happens if the Christian who lives under the law dies? He's going to be judged by that law, right? That means that any Jew or any Gentile, any Gentile under the Old Testament, who never found the truth was lost. Any Gentile who found the truth was then judged by the law. Now it's not just a, did you find the truth and did you obey it? It's a, you found the truth, now how well did you obey it? Right? It's a sliding scale. Um, and that, there, the, the idea of grace is there under the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, there was very little grace. But there was still grace. A lot of times we'll try to say that the Old Testament had no grace. You either followed the letter of the law or you were lost. And that's why the Old Testament was so hard. Acts 17 verse 30. In the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men to repent. Right? There was grace under the Old Testament. What are some instances in which grace can be seen under the Old Testament? When it comes to someone sinning and not being held accountable for that sin. Yeah, chapter 4 of Romans. Abraham. Abraham's whole life. His lies. Lied twice. Um, his his refusal to be circumcised. Right? Moses' murder. David's transgressions. Just put it that way. Solomon's wives and concubines. I mean, great. If you read the Old Testament and you think that the, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament because there's no grace in the Old Testament, you are reading the wrong Old Testament. I don't know where you're getting that. The fact is, yeah, there was grace. And that, that it's important to remember that um, even though the worship changed a little bit, even though there are no sacrifices in the Old Te- under the New Testament, the Old and New Testaments are a lot more similar than we, we make them out to be a lot. That's okay. Um, doesn't mean that we should just take anything from the Old Testament and put it in the New Testament and say it's okay. But I think we've, we've, tried, to, <laughs> we've tried to make the distinction because of things like instrumental music for so long. That there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a difference. There's a difference. We say that so many times that we start thinking they're completely, they're completely separated and there's no similarities. There's no connection. No anything. 
and that's just not true. Um, and that's one of the things that Romans is written for. All right, so let's talk about this, this idea of verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, here we go, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Doesn't that sound like they they're, they kind of have their own thing going? What is nature though? When they do by nature the things that are in the law. We've already seen that they did plenty of things that were against the law. Romans 1. When they do by nature. Nature in the New Testament can mean one of four things. It can mean an inherited trait. Like... Um, uh, they're not here, but I'll use them as an example. Uh, have y'all ever noticed how similar Brooke and Ginger are? I mean, every time like Brooke makes a joke, and I think that's that's Miss Ginger. You you know why? Because Brooke is Ginger's daughter, right? By that's an inherited trait. I do the same thing with Rebecca. The only issue is Rebecca's mom is not her biological mom, but they they've been together so long. That she'll do something, and I'll think I'll, I'll say, that, your mama would have done that. She'll say, shut up. You know, um, It's an inherited trait. Nature can be an inherited trait. It can mean uh, a human instinct, which is what we usually think about when we think of nature, right? The problem is, very rarely does the word nature in the New Testament mean human instinct. Hasn't nature taught you that men should have short hair, 1 Corinthians 11. What happens, guys, if we don't cut our hair? It grows long, right? Instinct, the natural world, does not teach us that men should have short hair. The natural order, another human instinct or natural order, those two things, they do not teach us that men should have short hair. Because when we let our hair grow, it grows, Right? been trying to grow this beard out for a year now, right? So um, so it, it, it's, not, it's not natural order, it's not human instinct, and it's not an inherited trait. The last of the four is kind of a long-standing practice. That it's something that they've done for so long that now it has become their nature. Um, it is my nature if you haven't noticed, to crack jokes. You know why? I used to not be like this. <laughs> I used to, I remember the day that I decided that I was going to have the, 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 the personality of being kind of jovial because I thought I'm taking myself way too seriously. And that was when the first time I ever went to Christian camp, when I was first baptized, two months later we went to Christian camp. And I met Billy Hayes, the guy who preached the gospel meeting last year. He cracks jokes at everything. And when I left camp, I remember the one thing I learned at camp that year was I am taking myself way too seriously. So I'm just going to start being happy sometimes. I'm going to start cracking jokes. I'm just going to be myself. I'm just going just gonna to try to open myself up more. Seven years later, this is what you get. Um... It's a, it's a long-standing practice. Now, I can't help 
but just I, I try to not take myself seriously too much. And I, I can't help when something happens, I crack a joke about it. Because it's a long-standing practice. That's the nature of Romans 2. When a Gentile, by long-standing practice, does what is in the Old Testament, they are a law, and then the text says, to themselves. That means their own responsibility. They're on a plane of their own responsibility. Each person has our own responsibilities to the law, right? If a Gentile learns the Old Testament, learns some aspect of the Old Testament, and by long-standing practice does that, they're going to be held accountable for doing that. Are they? Are they? If they if they fail in that, are they going to be held accountable for failing in it? Because long-standing practice now they are on their own plane of responsibility. If an elder in the church, do elders in the church have a higher responsibility? Do preachers have a higher responsibility? Okay. Um, I'm on a higher responsibility than, than, than the majority of Christians today. That's perfect. It's okay. It's one of the reasons why I became a preacher was because I knew that I needed a higher responsibility. I needed obligations so that I would remain faithful. Um, and you, you, we can talk about that later if you think that's not a good idea. But that's, that's why I became a Christian or why I became a preacher. Because I knew that I need to be held accountable or else I'm going to give up. I need people relying on me or else I'm going to give up. So I'm on this high lane, high plane of responsibility. I have responsibility that other people don't have. Like for instance, it's my responsibility to find some time on Sunday to offer some sort of personal worship. Because I, I you know, worship services are kind of, that's kind of work for me, right? Yeah. Um, I had one guy one time say I was paid to be there. And I just looked at him and went, yeah, okay, bye. I just walked off. I didn't know what, what, what do you answer to that? Uh, he said, yeah, sure, you'd come to church. You're paid to be here. Uh, I ain't paid to put up with you. Um, but anyways, um, I, I, have, I have a responsibility to, to make sure that I am worshiping on Sundays. And that's understandable, right? I mean, we all have the responsibility to make sure we're worshiping on Sundays. But I have this dual thing that has to go on in worship. I have to focus on what I'm about to do, and I have to worship at the same time. If I fail on focusing on what I'm supposed to do, have I sinned? Yeah, right? If, if I fail to... Now, understanding that there are circumstances that come up, but if I fail to do my studies and, and prepare myself for Sunday for sermons, have I sinned? Yeah. If you fail to pre- prepare a sermon for Sunday, do you sin? No, right? Long-standing practice, that is now my plane of responsibility. Gentile, by long-standing practice, he learned some snippet of the Old Testament. Or maybe he learned the Old Testament. Now he's a proselyte and he's living as a stranger in the gate. He is on that plane of, plane of responsibility now. He's going to be held accountable to it. Um, does that make sense to everybody? It's not that they made their own law up or that they had their own law outside of the Old Testament. It's that what Paul's saying is, to whatever degree they know the law, they're held accountable to that law. Same thing for a Christian. If a Christian doesn't understand. Now, 
we can talk about this later too, but I understand that that, that statement of there are Christians all, in every denomination is, is false. And it's false because of the mentality. Think of, notice this mentality that we talked about in Romans 1 and 2, Romans chapters 1 and 2. The, the Gentiles didn't have the mentality of searching for it. The Jews didn't have the mentality of caring about it. There are not Christians in every denomination. But what happens if a person is baptized and then two weeks down the road they, they go to the church that they grew up at, some denominational church, and they worship? And they just didn't know. That maybe, maybe for whatever reason they thought, for instance... Uh, let's just do a hypothetical here, and I hate hypotheticals because they don't give you any answers, but you've got a Christian who uh, grew up in the, the Primitive Baptist Church. Y'all ever heard of the Primitive Baptist Church? I mean, they are close to the truth, except they they have some some Calvinist teachings and that sort of thing. They grow up, they learn the gospel. They've grown up in this Primitive Baptist Church. They're brand new Christians and they say, well, yeah, I understand how worship is supposed to be. You know, the guy who taught, Lee taught me about salvation. He taught me about how worship is supposed to be offered. He taught me the oneness of the church. And everything I hear from him is kind of what I heard in the Primitive Baptist Church. But now I understand it more. And I was baptized last week. And Sunday night, I'm going to go with mom to the Primitive Baptist Church. Have they sinned? Maybe. But they're not on that plane of responsibility yet. They don't, they don't understand yet, right? They're brand new Christians. The person right out of the water is not on the plane of responsibility that a person who's been, been a Christian for 20 years is. They don't understand the same things. They're going to have differences of, differences of responsibility. Um, so if you just want to underline chapter 2, verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And that's really chapter 2. Is talk, he's just hammering the Jews. You think the Gentiles are so bad? What about you? Look in the mirror for a second. You've had the law sitting in front of you, and you hate each other. <laughs> you, you, uh, you just do it for cultural reasons now. You don't do it because of any religious reason. So chapter 3. So what advantage has the Jew, or what value is circumcision? If... If the Jew and the Gentile are going to be held accountable to the same law, what's so special about the Jew? What's so special about circumcision? Well, number one, you were commanded to be circumcised. Number two, you had, verse two, the oracles of God. You had this familiarity with the Old Testament. That's what's so special. Is that what, what advantage does the Jew have? You grew up with it right in front of your face. And you have the, the cultural, you have the societal uh, laws that, that are beneficial to Jews. You have being part, a knowledge of, of being part of the chosen people of God. Verse 9, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? Not, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That, that phrase, no one understands or seeks for God, uh, write down Psalm 14, 1 and 2. 
This is an idiom. This is this is a, a, a kind of a, a a phrase that they would say that meant that you're looking for something. Do you understand? Means are you looking for knowledge? Understand to us means you you you've you've mastered it, right? You you understand it. If I understand how a car engine works, it means I, I know how a car engine works. Understand to them meant are you searching for more knowledge? The Jews were always searching for more. Uh, if you meet a Jewish rabbi today, they're some of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. And they're always searching for more. They're always looking for for truth and rightness in everything. You hear a rabbi teach a, teach a, a passage of the Old Testament, and he uses illustrations more than he uses the New Testament, or the Old Testament. Why? Because truth is truth regardless of where it comes from, right? If, if it's true, it's, it's true just as much as the gospel. Because God gives us truth. Everything that is true, everything that is good comes from the Father of Lights, James says. So, no one understands it. No one seeks for God. The Jews were supposed to be continually looking for truth. Alright, we're going short on time. We're going to do chapter 4 next week. So let's just finish chapter 3 um, this week and then we'll, then we'll be done with it. So, uh, verse number 12. Somebody read 12 through 14. Romans 3, 12 through 14. They are all gone out of the way. They are together, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips. Did you say 14? Yeah. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Alright, 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about Jew and Gentile, right? Were there Jews, were, were there Jews who did follow the Old Testament perfectly? Paul said he did. And he was inspired by God, right? So chances are he was probably correct. Yeah. So why does Paul say that there's no, there's no one does good, no, not even one? It's hyperbole. He's trying to get across the picture that Jew and Gentile are lost without the gospel. And at this point, they're lost without the gospel because they didn't follow either one. Are there individuals that did? Yeah. Sure. But as a whole, he's using hyperbole here. As a whole, no. There aren't. The, the Jewish system and the Gentile system were both supposed to be following Moses, and neither one did it. Um, did we have, have uh, God pick a Jew because he was righteous? Just to say, for instance, Job. He was righteous, so. God picked him. He must have been doing what he said. I know the law wasn't revealed at that time, but he must have 
doing things that God... Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that the reason why when Satan says that, mm-hmm. I've been walking around on the earth and God says, have you thought about Job? Because God knew Job was going to make it through it. Because he knew who Job was. right? He knew that Job is a man of faith. That he is not going to give up. That he has, he is one who understands, who seeks God. He's always looking for truth. That he's, he's one that's going to stand the test. So what I mean is, another way of looking at it is, okay, you had Jews that were perhaps raised up in the law and they were supposed to have been taught it. You know, the law throughout their lives. Now, they may have followed it to the best of their ability and what they were taught. But. On their plane of responsibility, they were perfect. Yeah. Priests started doing stuff and putting stuff in that wasn't in there. That wasn't their fault. You know, they may have followed it, but uh, they may have have kept the things that uh, God expected. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. So, you know, I'm pretty sure some you know, followed the law and kept it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like I said, Paul said he did. He said he did. And, I, and I trust Paul more than I trust some preacher on TV who says the Old Testament was so hard that no one could ever follow it. Well, if that's the case, we have a problem because God has given us a law that no one could follow. Even though his purpose, chapter 1 was for all to be saved, and that's why Jesus died. You see what I'm saying? So, Alright, so chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It speaks to those who are under the law. Because the people outside the law don't, they don't know any better. It's not talking to the, to the person who's lost. The New Testament is not talking to the person who is lost. Name one passage in Scripture that was specifically written for a non-Christian. There isn't one. Matthew's written to Greek Christians. John's written to new Christians. Luke and Acts are written to Theophilus, who's a Christian. Romans, Christians. First and Second Corinthians, Christians. Every single New Testament book is written to Christians. Because the, because the non-Christian only needs to know salvation. That's all he needs. He doesn't need to know about miraculous gifts. He doesn't need to know about all these things. He needs to know about salvation. And that's why I said Romans, because Romans is the book on salvation. But at the same time, does the, does the non-Christian need to know how to treat someone who has a scruple about eating meat? No. Not until he becomes a Christian and he's faced with, okay, this guy has a problem with eating meat. Now what do I do? Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Acts 17.30 He'd been passing over all of these sins 
And now he shows Jesus Christ. He gives Jesus Christ as a, as a show of love for mankind. Not only in giving his son, but also in offering a way of salvation that was going to go forward and backward. Um, the word propitiation in verse 25 means mercy seat. It means, what was the mercy seat in the Old Testament? You remember what it was? Where was the mercy seat? The inner. Yeah, that's right. It was in the inner, inner chamber in the Holy of Holies, right? You have the holy place and the holy of holies. The special place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Inside the Ark was Aaron's rod that budded. The tablets that Moses had broken. Right? And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two angels whose wings were bent toward each other and they were bowing to one another. That was the mercy seat. That's where the presence of God sat. What happened every year on Yom Kippur? On the Day of Atonement. Right. He, the, high, the high priest would enter into the, the Holy of Holies three times, sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and have a conversation with God. The mercy seat is where God met man. Jesus is offered as a mercy seat because Jesus is where God meets man. Now we're not separated by the Old Testament by this this priesthood and that sort of thing. That's the only passage in Romans where he specifically talks about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But think about what he said so far in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1, Gentiles are lost because they didn't look for God. Chapter 2, Jews are lost because they didn't look for God. So that means everybody's lost. Now, chapter 4 and 5, he's going to talk about how do we get saved then? If everyone is lost, is there just no hope? Well, no, because Jesus, chapter 3, verse 25, was offered as the meeting place between God and man by his blood to be received by faith. How do we get to the mercy seat? Faith. Right? Chapter, 30, or chapter 3, verse 31, last but not least. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do, do, we, do we throw out the law? Overthrow means throw it out. Is it just trash? Is the Old Testament completely worthless? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold or stand by, we stand on top of the law. Because without the law, we don't have this problem that everyone is lost. The law showed sin. The law brought us to that plane of responsibility that now we need salvation. Could God have just killed Adam and Eve? Yeah. But but he instead he built the Old Testament law of Moses. He got him to the point that the law could come and then he built the Old Testament law of Moses to where now Christians stand on the law. Too many times we just throw it out with the bathwater because it's confusing. But he says we, we stand, we uphold the law because, chapter 4, Abraham was a man of faith. We'll talk about this next week. Abraham was a man of faith, but he wasn't under the Old Testament law. Just because you have the Old Testament doesn't mean you're saved, Jews. Because Abraham was saved and he didn't have the Old Testament and you didn't follow it to begin with. 
Right? So that's chapter 4. We'll talk about that next time. Are there any questions about chapters 1, 2, and 3 though? Next time we'll go 4 through 8. And, and realistically, chapters four, chapter 4 is just kind of uh, some notes that we'll make. It's not really a lot of, a lot of theological discussion. In chapter 6 and 7, you know, Christians talk about 6 and 7 so much that it's going to be pretty easy for us to go through those chapters. So we'll go through 4 through 8 next week. Any questions about that section, though? All righty. Sounds good. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Um,